Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. The Ottomans banned the printing press. Mm -hmm. But back to my coffee. Yes. Point. Christian families from from the West, uh, they had to give their eldest son, or at least a son, to the Ottomans. And the Ottomans, having laying claim to a caliphate, became became real. It's not that it's simply a wrong question. The whole corpus of questions are wrong. There is a growing interest in Ottoman history. This has come from a recognition that an understanding of our history, Islamic history, is necessary to carve our common Islamic future. But then the question arises, who writes this history? How do we know whether Ottoman historians, East and West, are purveyors of an Orientalist narrative slanted to match political interests? Today, to untangle the facts from fiction, I've invited Dr. Yakub Ahmed. Dr. Yakub is an academic specialising in late Ottoman history. He is a PhD graduate of the School of Oriental and African Studies and currently teaches Islamic history at Istanbul University. He is in the process of completing his first book on late Ottoman ulama to be published next year, inshallah. Dr. Yakub Ahmed, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and welcome back to The Thinking Muslim. Wa alaikum assalamu wa rahmatullah, but not only welcome back, I am in the studio. You're in the studio. I'm well, in the studio. And I'm on, in your territory. I'm That's in right. Your and you're city. wearing a suit for me as well, which I appreciate. <laughs> I appreciate Actually, before we start, I was wondering, yeah. can I get one of these Thinking Muslim cups? Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's yours. You it, can take does, it. Does each guest get one or am I special? Well, we're we're planning to order because you're not yeah. the first ones asked that question. Okay. But I think I've, I've decided that I need to uh, I need to buy They're some spares. Cool, I'd like to have one of those in my house. Oh, so. It would be a pleasure, our honour for you to yeah, have if that. If someone doesn't go on the podcast, I can still say I did the Thinking Muslim. <laughs> no worries. Well, as we know, today I've invited you to the podcast mm-hmm. to look at some of the controversial topics mm-hmm. surrounding the Ottomans. I've got 10 questions for you. Okay. These are the common questions I feel yeah. people ask about Ottoman history. Mm-hmm. And I want you to, to answer these questions and to give us your, your uh, knowledgeable understanding of how we should view Ottoman history. So by the end of this, I think you and I and, mm-hmm. and our, our viewers should have a very comprehensive view of the, the controversy surrounding Ottoman mm-hmm. history, let's say. So let's start with question number one. It's a question that I find most often asked Mm -hmm. by people like me, Mm -hmm. people in the West. And it's a question really linked to Ottoman decline. Now, if we think about uh, European decline, we realize that one of the key 
areas, they suggest that when they look at European decline they, or they look at the, the dark ages of Europe, mm -hmm. they talk about how European Christianity banned the printing press mm -hmm. and the impact that had on knowledge production across Europe. Right. In the same way, we hear that the Ottomans banned the printing press. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the truth of that and whether that led or that kept the Ottomans uh, in a declined position when Europe was in its ascendancy. Okay. Now, what do you think I'm going to say about your question? You're going to question my question and right. say, why am I asking that question? Yeah, that's right. And you and I have had this conversation on many occasions. Yeah. Well, I'll say it's the wrong question. It's a question I've asked. Right. <laughs> now, I'll tell you why it's the wrong Please, question. Please, yeah. It's not that it's simply a wrong question. The whole corpus of questions are wrong. Mm. And I'll try to break them down into two sections. So the first reason why the question is incorrect, because what is it predicated on? It's predicated on an assumption. The assumption is inbuilt in the question, mm. which gives me very little room to maneuver. Okay. Right. And so what happens here is that where does that assumption come from? And that's the first question that needs to actually be asked. So why is there an assumption inbuilt in this question? Mm. Right. And so the problem is for me is if I try to answer this question or I try to deconstruct the question by answering it, I become an apologist for the Ottomans, which is not what I try to do. I'm a historian. I want to teach history. I'm not a person who continuously needs to validate or prove or disprove something, which is what these questions do. They become um, a series of questions. So it's not just one. And so we'll have 10. And I'm sure that these 10, they come in a block. Mm. And what they do is they look at the large scope of 600 years of history. And every single question is not only independently predicated by an assumption, but collectively they create an assumption mm -hmm. that 600 years of Ottoman history is one which is negative, which is problematic, and so on. And so you can't escape the paradigm that there is a problem here. Mm -hmm. So what happens then when you ask questions like this is I have to continuously fight back against this question because that's not how we would teach history. But that's how the Ummah have become accustomed to asking these questions to me whenever I'm sitting at a conference or minding my own business in a coffee shop, which mm. is, hey, didn't that happen? And then I have a situation which is, okay, it's not quite like that. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And they want to enforce it. And if I give them an answer contrary to what the question is asking, they get upset. Are you telling me that at a coffee shop, someone will come up to you and ask yeah. you a question about the printing press? Sometimes, yeah. Really? Yeah, because, I mean, I'll be honest. <laughs> I'm a regular guy trying to my own business, but yeah. these podcasts have done something, right? <laughs> they've, they've created someone like me, a visibility, which I shouldn't have, but right. I've got it. Alhamdulillah. And so people are often interested in Ottoman studies. I'll go to a masjid in the UK or even in Turkey, and somebody will say, I saw you on the podcast. Now, is it true? So when it, when it started off like that, like I said, it's predicated with an assumption. Mm. So where is the assumption coming from? So that's the first question I'd ask them. Where is this assumption coming from? But, but, you know, just to just to respond to that, yeah. um, inevitably, I live in the West. Yeah. You know, I've uh, had some exposure to history. Yeah. I studied history as a master's topic, mm -hmm. albeit I didn't study Ottoman mm -hmm. history. Uh, so I would have read books about the Ottomans. Those mm -hmm. books, of course, would have come from the academy, which is a Western academy. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm already aware that when we think about Islamic history, mm -hmm that the academy often gets it wrong and purposely gets it yeah. wrong. So 
But nevertheless, you know, there is a, a discussion about these topics. And many Muslims, I've heard Muslim ulama mm -hmm. discuss the ban in the, uh, the, the printing press and yeah. how the Ottomans print. So inevitably, we're going to have to find an answer to that question, right? Yes and no. Ah. I mean, look, so like I said, the problem is, is that, so what I do in my classroom is I just teach and my students will go along with it. Mm. My students will never ask me the question, is it true that the printing press was the reason why we declined because we abandoned it? Yeah. They would, in fact, ask me a different question. Ah. They would, I give an example. Oh. Rather than ask me a question on Ottoman decline, they would ask me a question like, how did they survive for 600 years? Right. That's interesting for us. Mm. You know, um, how did they stay in power for this long? How is it possible that, you know, the Arab rebellions only happened in World War I? Mm. They would ask me things like, you know, how is it that we're writing these beautiful Qur'ans, calligraphy that we have in this country that we see in the massages and the museums all the time. So for them, the questions are not, um, can you prove or disprove something? Mm. It's I'm teaching them the history and then they're intrigued in something and then they respond to it. Right. Whereas here what's happening is what I'm saying to you is that very rarely does somebody ask me, can you teach me something? Right. What's happening is I've got a question that you need to plug the gap for yeah. because I have this question, right? right? So what I'm trying to do by deconstructing this one question, but then the host of questions you have, which create this collective, which is that we need to think differently, which is that whenever someone has this question or a question of this nature, like the printing press, and I will answer it, yes. but the point is, is that it's predicated on an assumption. Where is that assumption coming from? Mm. That person needs to do their due diligence and say, okay, where did I read this? Where did I attain this information? Why is it so, why is it common knowledge amongst us? And, and why is it, that I hold this position. I think the 1950s is a turning point for the way that Muslims started to imagine themselves in the region they were in. Mm. So the 1950s is you have Second World War, you then see Britain as a declining power, um, losing its empire. It happens to the French, happens to the Russians, but what's intriguing about the French, the British and the Russians is they create an imagination that they are a continuum of what came before. The Ottomans can't do that because they've collapsed, right? And then what happens in the 50s is you have the rise of um, Gamal Abdel Nasser coming mm. into power in Egypt, Arab nationalism or Nasserism, if you want to call it that. You then see the Cold War with the USSR and the United States of America. Mm. Totally changes the way that we perceive ourselves in terms of the world. Modernity as a narrative starts to become quite prevalent, both in regards to what the Americans are saying, but even as a response to that. What does it mean to be a modern national? What does it mean to be a modern citizen? Mm. What does it mean to exist in the modern world and progress and so on, right? What you see for Muslims at this time is they become detached from the generations of people that may have been part of the Ottoman past. An example, Mustafa Sabri Effendi, dies in 53, three, four months before Gamal Abdel Nasser comes to power. There's a host of people that pass away in this generation at this time. Who's Mustafa Sabri? So Mustafa Sabri Effendi would have been the Sheikh al-Islam of the Ottoman Empire. Okay. You know, and the senior scholar of the Ottoman senior scholar during World War One, yeah. but also was a senior scholar during the time of Sultan Abdul Hamid II. Right. right? So you see a generational shift. This is why it's intriguing to notice when do the Muslim movements start to come into existence mm. in the 50s and 60s, mm. right? Mm -hmm. There's a turning point in that sense. And what is the narrative that's been promoted here? It's in response to Arab nationalism. It's in response to communism. And it's in response to American capitalism. And so you start to see a lot of these narratives that then have to go back in time and say, that went wrong. And this is what we need to achieve, right? Right. But there's no writing taking place about Ottoman history in these countries. Yeah. It's irrelevant because at the time you're fighting for something else. The emergence of the new nation states, the removal of monarchies, 
the emergence of dictatorships, so of military how, dictatorships. So how do they build this narrative? You know, how does someone in Egypt in the 1950s or in Palestine in the 1950s well, learn Arab, about? Arab nationalism was um, not alien to what was taking place in Western academia. Mm. Arab nationalist um, thinkers in particular were interacting with works that were taking place in the Western academic world. Right. So in the 1950s is where you get the emergence of the modernization theory, right? Bernard Lewis and so forth. They, they pushed this out there. So the and modernization theory is what? Is that the nation state is a natural consequence of the modernization of the Ottoman lands, and that was going to happen inevitably. There's an inevitability in terms of that. That's not necessarily true. They take out all the struggles and fights and so forth, right? But how does a modernization theory link to the fall of the Ottomans? So basically the Ottomans are secularizing to modernize. Ah. And that's naturally what's taking place here. Right. And they need to secularize in order to be modern. Okay. Now, Muslims take exception to that, but they buy into the theory. They right. say, of course, that's what happens. That's why we are where we are. Uh -huh. Right. And now if you're in Malaysia or in Pakistan, you've got other projects going on. Ottoman history is irrelevant to you. Hmm. So Western academia in particular becomes the bastion on the writing of Ottoman history. So let, let me get that straight. I mean, I've, I've studied a little bit of a... Bernard Lewis, and I've mm -hmm. looked through his work. And so his argument is that uh, Muslims were in particular status. They were once a great empire. Yeah. Then Western industrialization comes along. Mm -hmm. uh, they have to respond to that. Right. But there is something within Islam and Muslims that prevents them That's right. from responding to the modernization of the right. European state. And so they stutter, they splutter around, they mm -hmm. try to modernize, but they never really get to that point. Right. Uh, and inevitably, then the Ottomans have to decline and have to, the Ottoman state collapses because yeah. it fails to modernize right. and keep up with the West. Right. Is there a problem with that narrative? Yeah, there is, because it basically modernity as a subject itself creates a particular dichotomy which you can't escape. Okay. Okay. So if you said to your students, are we modern? Mm. It's a bogus question, but it's a trap question. You either say, yes, we are modern, which then suggests that. In order to be modern, we are willing to make certain concessions. Right. Or you say, we are not modern, which then makes you look like you're not part of the civilized world and you're backward. So you get trapped by this question here. Islam should not be compared to modernity in some ways. So the question is, is that how do we then uh, make the case for Islam in the contemporary period without having to grapple with this framework, which is modernity? Very difficult to do. Okay, but you know, modernity is is a very abstract idea, maybe, and it's a yeah. very big idea. But let's talk about industrialization, right? You know, the Japanese yeah. were able to industrialize. It's the first Eastern power that was able to industrialize. And the Japanese faced Western colonialism, mm -hmm. yet they were able to turn it around very quickly. The Ottomans failed to do that. Isn't there a no? no they didn't fail to do that. Ah. That's not the see. That's the narrative. Ah. I mean, Japan is is not comparable to the Ottoman Empire. Okay, I mean, we got an empire that's stretching across three continents. Um, Japan is a series of islands. Yeah. But having said that, I mean, the Japanese in 76 made a visit to Istanbul. The Japanese in 1880 made a visit to Istanbul. They were very interested in what Istanbul was doing in regards to the, we use the word modernity here, modernization. That was on the one hand, Asiatic, something that they can learn and understand from, but at the same time, part of the contemporary world because the Japanese were very concerned about what's taking place in Western Europe and so mm. forth. Mm -hmm. And the, they saw the Ottomans, interestingly enough, as a, the, they saw them as the furthest Western Asiatic empire mm -hmm. and the only Muslim European empire. Right. Right? And this was not, not just the Japanese, it was the Chinese as well. 
Now, there is critique culture in Japan and China in relation to the Ottoman Empire. And that happens a lot. There's critique culture with the Ottomans as well. Mm. But there's also critique culture regarding the British. Right. This is happening across the board. But the difference is, is that where is Ottoman history written? Yes. It's, it's certainly not written in the Muslim world. Right. Okay. So that, that's, we have to ask ourselves why. Um, it is written in Western academia. So Japan today has between 23 to 27 Ottoman historians in the, in the country. No way. Really? Yeah. yeah. So I go to Japan quite often. So I know this. Right. Um, how many Ottoman historians would you find in Malaysia or Pakistan? Mm. Right. Or even the Arab world combined. I mean, there are some really good Arab Ottoman academics in fairness. Yes. But the point I'm trying to make is the investment there. The, the state of Israel in terms of its investment in Ottoman studies and Islamic studies is, is just crazy in Western academia wow. in comparison to another Muslim country in the region. Mm. And that's because the Muslim countries in the region themselves are, are trying to grapple or at least ignore or deny a particular Ottoman past. Mm. And when they do talk about the Ottoman past, it has to be framed as a decadent past, which legitimizes whatever system we have today. Mm. The only other country that has a decent job in terms of Ottoman studies is Turkey. And that's because Turkey has not been able to escape the Ottoman class. It's, course, yeah. it's here. But fundamentally, from the 19th century onwards, what you're seeing is Ottoman studies and Islamic studies as a Western enterprise. It happens in Western universities. They have a particular interest in Islam. They have a particular interest in Ottoman history. And um, those continue, those stay. And those two departments remain independent from one another some blurring of the lines do take place, yeah. but that's exactly what happens. In the Muslim world, that is not an investment. An investment in Islam, for example, why would we do Islamic studies? We have Alumadin, so that's mm. not important. Right. But, but Ottoman history in particular, now there is a situation here which no one takes an interest in. Yeah. So is, is it, so are you saying that the Arab nationalists, who in a way were responding to Western modernity or at least Western imposition mm -hmm. in, in Arab countries, they were learning from Western academia, Western intellectual history, yeah. and and they had effectively adopted the narrative that the West presented yeah. about Ottoman decline. It's a, it's a strange anti-Western Westernism. Ah, right. That's interesting. So, yeah. So in some ways, it is very anti-Western. I mean, yeah. you can see the critique of, but it still hasn't been able to find its place in the region at the time. Right. I mean, it's like I said, World War Two happens. The Ottoman Empire collapsed before yeah. that. Yeah. You got your own nation states, and then the rise of Arab nationalism and the shifts, that, and then the Cold War. And how these Arab states become proxies for these two entities, uh -huh. right? And in, within that framework, you have to then create a particular understanding of the past. But mm -hmm. you have to also create a particular understanding of the now. So history, and maybe we should have started this in the first place. So what is history? Well, what, are we, what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of um, you know, people who do other fields like Islamic studies or whatnot all believe they're historians because they dibble and dabble in the past. Everybody does, right? Yeah. So the assumption is, okay, we understand history is not necessary. But there's a difference between reading about the past and being a historian. And reading about the past is just knowing about things that happened. But history is an intellectual and ideological endeavor. Mm. That's what's actually taking place here. And so a historian, when they're going back in time, they know that they're not simply going back in time. They're addressing the question of an interest that people have today. That's what it's about. So I give an example of Quran just to help people. Surah Yusuf. Surah Yusuf is something that it's a beautiful surah from Allah Ta'ala. And for me as a historian, it's the one that helps me the most. Why? Right. Beginning, a middle, and an end. Right? It's a, and Allah Ta'ala says in Surah Yusuf, this is a story, right? 
And at the end of the surah, he says that, and this is a story for the people of understanding. So what Allah Ta'ala does in Surah Yusuf in particular is he wants you to contemplate each ayat mm. about the life story of Yusuf alayhi salam mm. and what he goes through. But who's Surah Yusuf really about? It's not simply about Yusuf alayhi salam. It's about Rasul Sallam. Because Rasul Sallam goes through the year of sadness, the issues in Ta'if, and he's having difficulties. And Allah Ta'ala then sends this surah to him and tells him that there are things in it that you know not mm. as a way of highlighting so that Rasulullah has his resolve. So what you realize here is the present and the past are interacting. And Al-Ta'ala is telling Rasulullah about Yusuf salam only what, which is what is significant to Rasulullah and for us later on. So he, you become very selective in the information you give. And the information he's given to Rasulullah is to help him through that difficulty that he was going through. And it's a beautiful story. And it's a beautiful way of telling it. And what you then learn from the Quran itself is that much of history is the way that you tell narrative and stories, right? Mm. That's important. And that's what historians are doing fundamentally, is they are constructing narratives for you. And sometimes these narratives are addressing the zeitgeist of the time. And sometimes these narratives are for historians to establish the zeitgeist of the time. Mm. And that's what they do in that sense, right? And so what's, for me, the time zone, this is what Muslims have stopped at, They've frozen in time, but they're still stuck with these like questions which come in, in a list format. Right. Like my list today. Which is fine because this is exactly because you're reflecting exactly what's happening, yeah. right? And this is why, like, when you read Ibn Khaldun, people don't read Ibn Khaldun much, but if they should, they mm. do, they should. The introduction of Ibn Khaldun's muqaddama mm. is about history writing first. He starts off with why history is important before all the civilizational things that he gets. Involved. And Umran itself is not simply civilizational. That's a modern sort of like interpretation of explaining these ideas. What is more interesting is the disposition of human beings, mm. the nature of people themselves, right? And he said the reason why we do history is we are truth seekers and we are truth speakers. We want to establish the closest to the truth so that insan may learn something from what people had done before, right? And so he makes this case there are two types of historians, right? The, he, goes, he calls it the Zahid and the Batan, the simple historians and the more deep thinking historians, mm -hmm. right? He goes, the simple historians, they just want to tell stories to rouse the crowd. It sounds great. And snippets, mm -hmm. short bites, mm -hmm. you know, maybe like a YouTube video, telling a story, blah, 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 blah. But he said that, but what's of real value is the deeper historians. Why did this happen? How did this happen? have a nuance in it, have a sympathy, have an understanding of the nature of human beings. And the reason why this is important is because when human beings, for example, when I teach Sirah, when they see the complexity of the lives of the Muslims, the lives of the Sahaba, the way that Rasulullah interacts with them, then they start to not feel guilty in themselves that there's something wrong with me. That as human beings, this is our fitrah, human beings are continuously going to be doing things in life which are both positive and negative. And so it's not only that we then look at the life of Rasulullah we then look at the journey that Muslims have gone through for 1400 years and say, we're still here, we still exist. And all of this that's taking place, it's not simply we're going to learn from it, but it's a reflection of the, just the nature of human beings. And then we can understand politics better. We can understand society better. We can understand economics better and so forth, right? So what's it? What, what upsets me a little bit at times is that um, 
So I was um, at a conference once and one of the speakers said, can you uh, give me the great moments of the Ottoman past so that we can have pride in Ottoman history? Mm -hmm. And I said to that person, like I said to you, it's an incorrect question. <laughs> and they said, what do you mean? I said, you need to take pride in yourself right now. Mm. That's the issue. So you need to feel comfortable as a Muslim today. You need to have pride in Alhamdulillah, you're Muslim. Alhamdulillah, you exist. This is, you know, when you're seen, for example, when you're watching UFC and you see Khabib Nurmagomedov jumping off the, and, you know, a lot of Western, like, um, commentators go, what the hell is going on here? This is a, and Muslims are going, Alhamdulillah, he should jump off the fence. Yes. It's because it's a particular feeling. There's a particular sentiment. When Muslims are doing sujood on the football field, that resonates with me, Alhamdulillah. They want to feel a sense of pride, a sense of honor. And they want to feel that in their history because they know, tacitly at least, that the way the history is being given to them is not given to them in a way or the way that they're understanding it. Even from their own, even from Muslims who are asking them these type of questions, that it doesn't feel very positive. It feels very negative. 600 years of negativity. The whole Ottoman Empire is a mess. Why am I doing this? Why am I learning this? So they turned to me and said, can you tell us something positive? And I said, good question. You need to take pride in yourself who you are. And once you've done that, and your aqidah should not be shaken by what Muslims did in the past. Mm. Put that aside. Your aqidah is your aqidah. Once you understand that, then let's do the past. And let's do what Muslims did. And let's like, understand that. And let's help you navigate it so that you can better place yourself in the timeline of history. Mm. Say, so I deserve to exist. I'm not... It's not, I shouldn't be ashamed of existing. Yeah. We're not that bad as everyone else. And that throughout history, there's these ups and downs. And we're going to keep going through it. But the idea of a 600-year decline, imagine. Like, how do you explain that to Muslims? For 600 years, we've been nothing. Mm. That's a very difficult pill to take. But, but I suppose what we're trying to understand, you're right. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're thinking about history and how that history informs Right. Our decline state today, or right. our problematic state right. today, or the the uh, position of the ummah. So certainly, I'm coming from. I suspect my question implicitly. Yeah. They're trying to search for the present. They're trying to yeah. work out why are we who we are today, yeah. and why are we, you know, in in such a, a parlous mm -hmm. state, right? Uh, but coupled with that, yes, we've we've adopted a narrative. Was your question in here? Mm -hmm. But you know, at some point. Uh, there was a fault line that belonged that existed within the Muslim Ummah, mm -hmm. and that fault line led to a series of tragic events, which culminated in the decline of the Ottoman Empire in the early 20th century. Now, you're questioning whether that narrative is actually that linear. Well, look at the gaps. Right. Look at the gaps in the six hundred. We got we jump bang bang. So bang. you got ups and downs. So I mean, look, we the idea that a civilization go whoop. Up yeah, and then yeah. down, yeah, is, which is what we've internalized. Great sound effects. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. Um, it 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 didn't work like that. Yeah, actually, it's peaks and troughs, uh -huh. ups and downs. I mean, I always use this analogy just to help people understand. Yeah, look at a football team, uh -huh. like Liverpool Football Club. Mm. They had their heydays in the 1980s, struggled in the 1990s, come back. This is ups and downs. Even in their lowest moments, they are still winning trophies here and there. Yes, right? yeah. So in in that sense, what you see is. It's not always this case that it's a 600-year collapse. It's possible to argue, and a more fair argument would be, that something happened in the last 20 years. Mm. Right? In 20, a 20-year... 20 all right, let me 
put it this way. It's about imagination, okay, and how Muslims imagine. See, when you're reading a history book, sometimes people don't appreciate 600 years is a very long time. Right. Imagine how many days are in 600 years and how many hours. Yeah. But when we're reading it, we're, we're time skipping. We're flying through it and assuming it's all part of the same period, time period. Mm. And so a lot of the times we have a very sort of like skewed understanding of time in of itself. We can't actually place time in our head in regards to the imagination. Right. So what happens is they don't realize that there's huge things that are happening in these time spaces. Um, but they think that they're happening one after the other and they just this collapse and it's taken. Right. But it's what we see in the Ottoman Empire, because they've been around for 600 years, so it's a good survey in some ways, we can actually see peaks and troughs that we have, we were unable to see in the Abbasid or the Omeya period mm. because those were smaller time frames right. in many ways, right? Yeah. And so what we see is ups and downs, extreme ups, extreme lows, and find where the Ottomans were unique is the way that they could retransform and revive themselves continuously. Right. And it's true that they were not always on par with the Western powers and so forth, and that is uh, an example of that. Mm. But it would make more sense to make the argument that in the last 20 years, perhaps, right. that there was a particular struggle that created a particular combustion. Okay, so with all of that meta-analysis yeah. aside, I mean, I think it's a, what you've laid down the foundations that I think we could probably have an entire session just on those foundations. Can you invite mean, me again? I, I certainly need to. I don't have enough mugs left to invite you for a mug session. So long as you wear your suit again, bro. That's in the last. <laughs> uh, so let's then, so let's, let's know, go, indulge wanna, me. Indulge do you want to go back to your question? Uh, indulge me. Let's go back to the printing press. Okay, so right. printing press. Did the Ottomans ban the printing press? No. Okay. Okay, but let, let's entertain this question. Yeah. Um, when did the Western powers get the printing press first time, do you reckon? Yeah, was it the 17th century? Actually, before that. Before that, really. Right. 1460, 1470, oh. right? right? So that's quite interesting. 1460, yeah. 1470 mm. is either the British or the Germans. There's a contestation regarding who yeah. got it first. Yeah. They, they were still with that. Yeah. That's their problem. What is, what is happening in Istanbul in 1450s and 60s? You tell me. Part is concrete Istanbul. Okay. So, so we've seen a totally different world, like where you've got a print machine created in Western Europe, but at this time... Fatih conquering Istanbul, I wouldn't consider that a decline because he's not using the printing press. Mm -hmm. Now, throughout that time, and we see this with the fall of Andalusia, where Jews and Muslims come from Spain to the Ottoman Empire and are permitted, Jews in particular and Armenians and, and Greek Orthodox Christians are permitted to use the printed press. Right. No problem against that. Yeah. Because the script that they're using is conducive towards the printing press, separated letters and so forth. Now, there's a narrative that Bayezid, Sultan Bayezid, passed a fatwa to ban the printing press. What so sort of time period is this? It's in probably, uh, Bayezid is before Fatih or after Fatih? It's after Fatih, mm. I think. My numbers are not great. No worries. But the idea is, is that Bayezid puts out a, a fatwa to ban the printing press. Mm. It's a phantom fatwa. Right. It doesn't exist. Really? But we've internalized it. Um, I've been looking for this fatwa for years mm -hmm. just because Muslims have been insisting that it exists. Right. Now, it's known that a French, 19th century French Orientalist popularized this theory and Lewis writes it. Yes. But um, what possibly would have happened is Sultan Bayezid would have said, we're not printing Qur'ans. Mm. Because at the time, we have to be honest, we have to ask ourselves, what was being printed? Okay, so... 
if Muslims are falling behind, what is being printed exactly? You mean in Europe? In Europe. Okay. And it's not Shakespeare, because those are plays that people go to the theatre for. So it's Bibles. It's religious texts, religious books. Now, Muslims are producing literature of the same volume, but it's written by hand. Why? And you've been to the museums in Istanbul, you've seen the Qur'ans and the way that they beautified them. The consumer market would not accept and tolerate a Qur'an or books of religion that look splodgy. With the, instead, they want to beautify them. So to make a comparison at this moment of literacy, it also doesn't make sense because we really don't have the type of data that we're asking for in terms of lit literacy comparison. But books are being produced. We know this, right? All right. Then the next thing is, is that when they're producing these books, we have scribes, hattat or khat. They write doing calligraphy. That was an important business in the Ottoman Empire. Right. So for them, the idea of losing the possibility of doing that. And then the third part is the Muslim tradition is a tradition where the oral tradition matters. Right. And the written tradition. They're side by side. But the way that we learn is different. In the West, you take a book, you give it to someone, they read it. Mm. And in the Islamic world, books were written to be taught. So you'll have one book, 50 students, mm. and a teacher will teach it. Right. right? You go to a mosque, sit down, a congregation, you read it out, perhaps. Maybe they memorized it, and so forth. So it's still not telling us about the, the literacy comparison. So what's the problem here? There's a comparison, comparison taking place mm. regarding Western Europe. All right, when does... Western Europe actually get the printing press, as you said, Industrial Revolution, mm. 1700s. Mm. When does Ibrahim Mutafarika get produced the printing press in Istanbul? Mm. 1727. Okay. Okay. So now we see that actually the Ottomans do have a printing press machine that produces in Arabic or in Ottoman Turkish in the same way that they do in the West. Having said that, Mutafarika does have some challenges, but the challenges, once again, are not coming from the Sultan himself. Is that they don't have a consumer market that's willing to to read in this way still, right? But by the 1800s, now with the industrial revolution, the introduction of steam, mm. and the paper revolution, new forms of paper, we're now starting to see the production of newspapers, journals, novels, fiction, and books, and so forth. And then you start to see the production of the printing press across the world in the same way. And the ulama had their difference of opinion about what should be printed and what ought not to be printed. Yeah. And the Qur'an becomes printed very late. Now, a lot of the books that we have today in our libraries, hmm. the Ghazalis and the Taymiyyahs and so forth, this was because of the Ottoman printing press. Because that manuscript culture, before in the olden days, you'd have to go and pull a manuscript out of some library in Damascus or go to an alim and say, do you remember such and such? So the printing press gave us the books that we're reading today. Hmm. Not only that, the Qur'ans we read today, the Mus'hafs that we have, only exist because of the printing press. Prior to the printing press, there was no Mus'haf because people would not have been interacting with the Qur'an in the same way. What about coffee? So again, linked to that question, uh, the argument goes that even the most frivolous of issues, coffee, was banned by the ulama at the time. The Sheikh al-Islam had a fatwa against coffee when it entered uh, the Ottoman lands. Is there a truth to that? Okay, so... Um, but we've established, are we happy with the printing press? We're happy press? with the printing press. Right. So, because I'll tell you why also one last thing before we move on. Is that um, Kamal Karpat, who's a famous Ottoman academic who passed away, mm. um, he had published a book about um, literacy rates in the Ottoman Empire in the Hamidian period. 
And he, he made up these interesting numbers and people ran with it. Numbers have never been able to be substantiated. Really? It felt like a lot of Ottoman historians felt like that was a fudge. And then Cem Bahad, who's an academic in Turkey, um, actually looks at those numbers and says, they don't, they don't make sense. They don't add up. So these are very low numbers. Exactly. They're showing very low numbers in right. comparison. Right? Yeah. Um, the censuses were done differently. Yeah. So the census in the Ottoman Empire would be one per household. Right. So if there's five people in the household, it's one. If there's 20 people in the household, it's one. Right. Data collection is different. So right. I just needed to put that out there as well yeah. because this continual... Look, I don't want to go back to Rasulullah but I am going to do on this occasion. Like, yes. For example, firstly, my mother. My mother's not illiterate because she can't use her laptop very well. Mm. She can still use the pen. Right. There's an ayah in the Quran, the surah in the Quran that's called Al-Kalam. Mm. Rasulullah okay, we as Muslims are some of the most educated people in the world. Islam encourages that. Islam encouraged writing. But Rasulullah was still not somebody who's reading writing. You can see that in Hudaybiyah. Mm. So, what you see here is there's not an imposition or a, a reflection of intelligence based on the fact that you can read and write with a pen. Because we judge intelligence in a totally different way in terms of our civilization. Oral tradition. People are learning through. I think what I'm trying to say is that in our tradition, the oral tradition and the written tradition coincide. Ah. And the oral tradition is just as valuable and valid as the written tradition. Right. But when we're making the assumption about the literacy rates or the decline of the Ottomans, or Muslims in particular, we're saying Muslims. Because yeah. we don't only talk about the Ottoman Empire. Robinson was talking about this um, about regarding India, that Muslims in India had banned the printing press and so on. Right. So this is something that stuck with Muslims, which is we're just ignoramuses because we're not using this machine. Mm. It's not necessarily true, right? And so once again, it goes to my point about pride now in the past. So now people will say, this doesn't prove anything. In reality, the way I've tried to answer your question is I've tried to unpack it a little bit to show that maybe the way that the question is so narrow is not helping mm -hmm. in understanding exactly what's taking place regarding the Muslim world. But, but I think it's a very useful answer because, of course, we've grown up knowing, believing in a narrative right. that there were some issues within Islamic scholarship yeah. that prevented modernization in yeah. inverted commas. And you've, you know, you, in a way, you've burst one of those bubbles, you've suggested that there is just no evidence to say that the Ottomans banned the, the Ottoman press. And anyway, right. you know, the, the way knowledge production happened in Ottoman territories was completely different to right. how we imagine right. knowledge production today. Right. I get that. I think right. that's a really a great answer. But back to my coffee yes. point. Starbucks. But, yes. So what, how, do we, how do we understand uh, the arguments? Uh, because in a way, that's another argument presented by people but like lewis yeah. that you had you know coffee is not a problematic drink by any yeah. means right yet it was banned by ottoman so Ottoman's let me ask Ottoman. you a question go on i guess we live in a world now where we've become accustomed to drinking coffee mm. large amounts of it yes we go to the starbucks or the third way coffee shops or so off, right yeah who cares what if i said that to you who cares how is that an indication of decline that they said you can't drink coffee yeah, no, I, I don't think it's... You're right. And once you ask the question, you're thinking, okay, wait a minute, how does that link to losing a war, right? right? But I suppose the, the point is, uh, we do have some fragments of that thinking today. You have ulama today yeah. who say, this is haram. Right. Without really studying what the this is. AI is haram, right? right? Or, I don't know, Bitcoin is haram, I don't know. Bitcoin but is that is unanimous, that position? No. Okay. No. So already, 
for us who are in the tradition, yeah, we know there's a plurality of voices. Okay, plurality of thought. Yeah, it's a fatwa. Mm. It's an opinion. Mm. You don't have to follow it. Sure. Okay, that doesn't mean I'm not answering the question about the Ottomans here yet. But yeah. what I'm trying to do is deconstruct your question again. Okay. All right. All right. Which is that. Why is it that we've become so obsessed with this idea that they were not allowing people to drink coffee? So yes. something went horribly wrong. Yeah. Right. In actuality, coffee from time to time was banned in the Ottoman Empire, yeah. but the substance wasn't banned itself. Mm. So when you look at the fatwas, it's interesting. They don't. There are some ulama who are intrigued about the possibility, and we have to be fair to them. Imagine for the first time you've got a substance which people haven't um, interacted with much. And people drink this substance and they stay awake all night. And you're asking yourself, is this an intoxicant or not? Mm. Throughout Islamic history, like Khamar wasn't just like, you know, alcohol. It was people were fermenting rice, people were fermenting dates, grapes. And every time somebody drank something, it was like, you know what, what is that? Oh, it's just vinegar. Is it vinegar? Is it barley? Is it boza like they have in Turkey? What is it? Is it kombucha that people are drinking today, that are fermented tea? Yeah. And then when they drink it and they say, people are kind of losing their heads with this. That's going to be khamar. Mm. Now with coffee, coffee was complicated because it's a stimulant for sure. So throughout Islamic history, not just in the Ottoman context, where certain ulama would have looked at that substance and said something's not right with it. Mm. Like ghat that they chew in Yemen and in Somalia and so forth, mm. right? And even with hashish, um, there is a difference of opinion on that, right? Yes. Um, in that sense. Um, and ulama would have looked at that and said, that's a drug. You can't smoke that, right? Now, what's intriguing is that the majority of the ulama, when they would have tried to ban coffee, would have been because of the um, coffee houses, right. which would have been the Twitter spaces of that time, where a lot of Muslims would have gathered, had discussions and so forth. So what was the, the fatwa? The fatwa was actually the banning of the coffee houses because the fires that they use to make coffee, the houses are made from woods, they start fires in the city, and they're dangerous. They didn't actually go after the substance itself. They actually had a more complicated view of tobacco, because tobacco and coffee came at the same time. And tobacco is also interesting, because um, certain ulama have said in the past that tobacco is mubah or makro, because um, why? Because they would say, yeah, well, they're just chewing it, doesn't do any harm to them. And in Arabic, people say, you drink tobacco. Now nobody drinks tobacco. So what right. do they do? Because those shisha pipes, right. you're bubbling and so yeah. forth. Yeah. So the ulama would have looked at tobacco as well and said, what's going on here? Yeah. Now we've accepted the tobacco issue, but we haven't accepted the coffee issue. Yes. In reality, the Ottomans are what the people that gave Europe coffee. It was during the time of Suleiman the Magnificent that Europeans discovered coffee because of the Ottomans. Mm. And throughout the 500 years of Ottoman history, different sultans had an issue with people collecting together in spaces where they could do certain activities against the Sultan. Right. So they needed to find ways of obstructing that, especially when the Janissaries in particular became, the coffee houses became a way where they could make money and be semi-independent or independent from the Sultan himself. Mm -hmm. And so they needed to be a way to try to stop the Janissaries from having this major source of income, right. which is, and so on. So this is akin to, I don't know, regulating Twitter, regulating social media, possibly. Find yeah, it. of course. Yeah. I mean, but even today. Okay, yeah. let's just say that Khalifa exists today. Mm. Uh, you know, and he turns around and says, I'm banning coffee. Yes. What are you going to do? Like, and even today, the ulama, some ulama will say, 
you obe- you heard and you obeyed. He said, ban coffee. He says, coffee's not good for you. Mm. We're not drinking coffee. And other people go, well, what are you talking about? We love this beverage, you know. Yeah. So it's, it, for me, when I hear the issue of coffee and people bring this to the table, I, I find it laughable. I think, okay, I get it, but it's just coffee. Yeah. Mm. But the importance of coffee is that it has a political component. That's what they're targeting, right. per se. But they can't ban the substance. Yes. So you have to find different ways of... And even when they did stop people from drinking the substance, people were still drinking coffee. Okay, mm. And then they had to find ways of loosening that. Mm. Okay, great. Now I think you've, you've cleared that up. So let's then talk about something maybe a little bit more substantial than coffee. There is a... Uh, and maybe this comes out of the 1950s and 60s and, and Arab nationalism. And there is this belief, especially amongst Arabs, that the Ottomans persecuted Arabs and persecuted minorities. Yes, certainly there is a discussion about non-Muslim minorities, especially during the latter period. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there is this heavy view, a very yeah. strong view that the Ottomans uh, repressed Arab identity in the 600-year history of the Ottomans. Yeah. I mean, how do, you, how do you respond to that? Well, firstly, the Ottomans were only in charge of the Arab provinces for 400 years. Okay, right? so 400 years. Okay. Yeah. Now, the question... It's an interesting one because we said Arabs mm. and non-Muslims, mm. which make up the majority of the empire. Right. So that means everybody was being persecuted apart from the Turks, <laughs> which it, it, when you look at it, when you make me think of it like that, it just sounds ridiculous. Um, now, um, Murad Bardakci, who's a famous journalist in this country and also a historian, um, he, he said something which was interesting for me mm-hmm. um, when he was talking about World War I. And he said that the term that they use for the Arabs, the Ottomans in particular, especially in the Hamidian period, is uh, Najib Millet, which means like the great Millet, the auspicious Millet, the lofty yes. Millet. Yeah. Right? This is a term that's used for Turks these days. It's used mm. in the Turkish Republic, they use it for the Turks. Mm. But at the time, they were using it for the Arabs. Now, why were they using it for the Arabs? Because there was a recognition amongst the Ottomans. They're not that the Arabs are special or better than anyone else, mm. but there is a recognition that Islam came via Ar- the Arab tradition. And that the Arab provinces in particular um, have a particular tendency and a reality of the practicing of Islam, which is something that the Ottomans are proud of. And that they are part of a world that includes the Arab world. Mm-hmm. Right? So let's look at Salim, Yavu Sultan Salim, Salim the Third or Salim the Grim, whoever, whatever mm-hmm. style of history you want to do. Yeah. And when Salim conquers the Arab provinces, um, what we're seeing is that Mamluki scholars are already engaging with Istanbul prior to Salim's conquest. So um, I went to a presentation by um, a, a friend of mine, and he gave a, a wonderful presentation, Kasim Koposoja. I should mention his name so that people can check him out. He did his PhD at Binghamton University. He was an imam in the States, mm. and he now teaches Islam here. And he did his PhD on um, scholars, a particular scholar, but scholars, from the Mamluki period, who were coming to Istanbul mm. during Fatih's conquest of Istanbul. Meaning there's already an interaction between the ulama regarding the Ottoman Empire and the Arab world prior to, um, to Selim's conquest of the Arab provinces. Now what's intriguing is for Selim later to come and make his reign possible, it would have only have been possible if the ulama in the Arab provinces, to some degree, then found a language to legitimize what he had done. Right. And to some degree, what you see is after Selim, what does Selim do? He starts to decorate the Aqsa and he starts and Suleiman Masjid al-Nabawi and so forth. Why? Because they, 
They're trying to attain the legitimacy of the people. They're not trying to, they could have crushed them. They're not trying to do that. They crushed the Mamluks, which is a particular form of power. Mm. But society, by and large, they were not attempting to do that. They have continuously tried to win them over. And I'll give you an example about the Ottomans, early Ottomans. When the early Ottomans, Osman, Orhan, Murad, Huda, Vandigar, when they got into the Balkans in particular, they know that forced conversion is problematic. Mm. It's not part of their intention. What their intention is, is to not agitate uh, the, the defeated peoples, to make sure that Muslims don't live in close proximity to non-Muslims, to have the idea of trying to find ways of appeasing the elites and making them feel part of the Ottoman territories so that they don't um, rebel against them. It's, it's not like the American way, where you have to put boots on the ground, because that's what you'd have to do. If it's aggressive, you have to put boots on the ground. So how do you survive without boots on the ground? You have to use other mechanisms and policies for people to accept you as an authority. And the fact that that had happened in the Arab prophecies for so long gives an indication that this, re this relationship afterwards became reciprocal. Mm. It's only during the latter end of the Ottoman Empire in World War I where many of um, the particular Arab elites became disenfranchised with the young Turks in particular, not Abdul Hamid, but the young Turks more specifically, mm. that you start to see an agitation towards that. And then when Arab nationalism kicks in later, um, then you start to see the creation of this idea that the Ottomans had always oppressed the Arabs. But that's just not a feasible uh, way of, of, of thinking about it because it, it wouldn't have been possible to rule over the Arabs for, for that long. It just wouldn't have happened. So let's then talk about the Christian minorities within the yeah. Ottoman realms. Um, uh, there was a system called a Dev Shermer system yeah. where uh, Christian families from, from the West uh, they had to give their eldest son, or at least a son, to the Ottomans, and and that son, in effect, was treated as a slave, yeah. and uh, was uh, was uh, integrated within the Ottoman army. Mm -hmm. So there was a system of slavery. Yeah. Now looking back at you know that system, that sounds like a a very problematic system, mm -hmm. right? Um, how do you how do you understand? I mean, unpick. That whole Devashirmi idea for me. So, what's your imagination of that? What do you what do you imagine? Well, of course, you know, most people when they think about slavery, they think about how the Americans treated, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, the uh, uh, the slaves on the on the plantations, for example. But when when you hear stories of like the Ottomans are taking people's kids away, what well, that sounds pretty cruel, right? right. You're taking someone's of child course. away. That that's what the imagination is, right? Yeah. The, the Ottomans are walking in and every household is just pulling these children away and say goodbye. Yeah. That's not actually what happened. Okay. Um, now, once again, I'm not trying to defend Ottoman slavery. I think in the Ottoman world, in particular, slavery and conscription, um, as they become amalgamated, is a very complicated area space, which people need to study more. Right. Um, conscription, even today, is a complicated space, actually. If you're part of the armed forces, um, you're virtually a slave of the state. You have very little choice, right? Um, and in the armed forces, they don't want people to have choice anyway. They want you to obey whatever orders they give you. Otherwise, you're going to choose not to die. Um, and that's why war in of itself becomes gruesome because you see um, war crimes being done by particular peoples mm. because particular commanders would just tell them to, to obey. Mm. Even during moments of the military coups that take mm. place, regular soldiers are just obeying orders, right? And so forth. So soldiers and conscriptions are just, there's a complexity in, it, in itself. And the sort of like, um, the way that we understand violence may need a better treatment. Um, than the way that we're understanding it right now. Once again, I'm not trying to legitimize it, but I, I'm trying to frame something that can help understand what's going on here now. Okay. All right. Now that we've got to that point, yeah. 
The Mongol world was a very violent world. The Mongols were taking slaves. Christendom was also taking slaves. So this is not an Ottoman construct. The world around you is taking slaves. They'll go over, defeat you, take slaves. Prisoners of wars, women, children, slaves are taken. What the Ottomans did, which was different, which is interesting in some ways, is that if you are an area which surrendered before you fought them, then they wouldn't take any children or conscription. If you were a place that resisted, what you would have expected is everybody to just get blitzed because that's what happened. But the Ottomans didn't do that. Instead, they turned around and said, all right, look, what we're going to do is we're going to give you the choice of giving us one child from every 40 households. Now, in those days, so people would have been communal societies. So you notice like people would convert en masse. Villages would convert. One guy, everybody converts, right? So the communities would have got together and made a choice, probably, of which children they are going to send to this conscription service. As a result, those people would join the conscription service, get an education, which was obviously an Islamic education. That's the only thing the Ottomans knew. Gave them an Islamic education, gave them probably a stipend, and gave them the possibility of going up the ranks and even becoming Grand Vizier, mm. right? Are there examples of, uh, of uh, Christians who... In effect, became noblemen in, within the Ottoman. Yeah, Mimar Sinan, okay. the famous one. The architect. The architect. He was a Christian. Yes. Right. right? So what would happen then is, but what, what, what is the system trying to do? Mm. Okay. The system is trying to do this. Say, so on the one hand, um, we could give you the same type of punishment everyone else is giving you, but we're not going to do that. What we're doing is we're going to find a different way of integrating you within the, um, the sort of like political space. You're going to send your kids over to us. We're going to educate them. We're going to put them in the armed forces. And we're going to give you a little, maybe, it's not always the case, they give you a stipend or whatever. But these kids will become soldiers, noblemen, and so forth. And then the areas which have sent these children would have felt a sense of attachment to the center. And the interesting thing here is the antagonism that we think that existed between Islam and Christianity needs a better treatment because the antagonism between Christianity and Christianity was greater. Right, So one Christian area would have been far more barbaric to another group of Christians in the Balkans than the Ottomans would have. So the Ottomans used a different strategy. They said, we can't replicate the strategies that the Mongols had used or these guys were using. We'll use a, a different type of conscription. And the reason why they needed that conscription service is possibly because they don't have an infinite amount of soldiers. So Why can't they recruit from Muslims? And Muslims would have joined them anyway. But like, once again, like I said, in the Balkans, which is predominantly an Ottoman project where fundamentally the largest group of people were non-Muslims. Yeah. And people forget this, that the Ottoman Empire for most of its time was a Muslim entity where predominantly people were non-Muslim, right. right? That was the strategy that they probably chose to use at the time. Now, we can still dislike that. I'm not against Muslims to say, I don't like that. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Um, and Muslims can critique that. And if the ulama, when they're going to the fiqh books and say that's unacceptable, they can do that too. But what I'm trying to do by answering this question is to give that nuance to the question. Yeah. Because what, when I asked you, what, what is your imagination? This is the point I was trying to make. Right. That we have an inbuilt imagination about what we assume was happening. Um, and in reality, what was probably happening was something very different yeah. um, in that sense. And we forget that it's a violent world. But do we have any accounts of how Christians, Christian parents, how Christian communities viewed this Ottoman imposition? 
I haven't read the accounts personally, mm. but I've spoken to colleagues, and yes, there would have been certain people that would have been unhappy about that, of yeah. course. Yeah. I mean, who likes to be defeated at war, mm. right? And uh, who likes to be taken as a slave at war? But over a prolonged period of time, um, in the world that they're in, this is a particular system that they would have tolerated over the system that existed. Right. And they would have found this system, maybe they would have disliked it, but more palatable, I guess, than the system that came before, which are far more brutal mm. in many ways. And this is the point I'm making, which is that if you're going to do a comparison, don't do a comparison of today. At the time, the world was an exceptionally violent place in terms mm. of, like I said, you know, the Mongol invasion and mm. the sort of like particular forms of violence that Christian states are enacted upon each other. Mm. And the Ottomans came and, and, and tried to really do it differently. Mm. And it's for that reason they were successful. Actually. Right. So as I said to you before, they tried very hard not to agitate the Christian population. Mm. And as a result of that, the Christian populations remained. Right. There was no forced conversions. There was no humiliation or embarrassment. What was done was in particular to say, all right, look, we're going to take this child and we're going to put them into our system. Yeah. And we're going to make them one of our own and so on. So let's, let's go back to the original question about decline. So now we've built a pattern of, you know, that y your argument is the analysis is that there was no linear decline. So I suppose my next question, I suspect I'm, I've got a partial answer to this, but it's worth asking you the question. So in the West, uh, Bernard Lewis talks about this and the height, mm. the epoch of the Ottoman Empire was what? The 17th century, Suleiman the Magnificent. These 16th, century. 16th century, sorry, Suleiman the Magnificent, these amazing amazing years yeah. and then from that point onwards you you saw decline after decline and mm. ottoman uh sultans and caliphs were firefighting is there a truth or at least a partial truth to that if the analysis is simply based on the fact of the expansion of land yeah then uh, yes I so we reached the height of our expansion yeah at the time of Suleiman. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And then from that moment that was not possible. Right. And so what would be assumed even by Muslims is the siege of Vienna, which failed, mm. was an indication of that decline. And the reason why that decline took place is because in Suleiman's time himself, mm. there is a particular decadence that's taking place. And right. so from that moment on, we never recovered. Yeah. But when you do an Ottoman history, like I'll give you an example, post-Suleiman, mm. the sort of like um, uh, the creation of Ottoman Turkish. So Ottoman yeah. Turkish was not a language that was used yeah. that became popularized as a, a language of intelligentsia. Yeah. Um, what people don't realize is you can't infinitely expand. There needs to be moments of consolidation. Yeah. And so you have to consolidate what you've made, consolidate religion, consolidate troops, and, and so forth. And what people don't appreciate is from generation to generation. So imagine this, from generation to generation. Yeah. How, how do you maintain that sustenance, that existence? Um, that is very difficult to do, and they were able to achieve that. Um now, when we're talking about decline, it's in comparison to... So the question is in comparison to what? Mm. Exactly, right? Mm. So then what we do is we say the Ottoman Empire versus the West. And we created Western Europe as a holistic block. Mm. Not seeing... We, we ignored the Napoleonic Wars, mm. the wars that they're having amongst themselves, the moments mm. of uh, decline that we have even in, in the European context between various states and so forth, right? Mm. Instead, we just look at them as a whole mm. because what we did... I guess to some degree, is we made this comparison a civilizational one. Right. It's a civilizational comparison mm. between the Muslim world and the non-Muslim world, which is Western Europe in particular, or the West. Mm. And then we said, well, the, the problem is not with Islam. Mm. The problem is with these people. Yeah. These people failed it, right? 
And that is a civilizational sort of like um, idea that came about in, um, you, you start to see in the late 19th century and then the early 20th century, where a lot of Muslim thinkers started to write about works on Islamic civilization, civilizational discourse, yeah. and Medinid and so forth, right? Because the West who were colonizing the world were making the argument that they are a superior civilization. And we couldn't accept that. So rather than saying they are a superior civilization, we had two places to go. No, our civilization is better than yours. Or it is better than yours, but we just haven't done it properly. Right. right? And so that's what then happened, how it became internalized to some degree. But there is an argument that if we think about the, if we, I know this is an oversimplification of our history, but we've got the Umayyads, we've got the Abbasids, and we've got the Ottomans. Mm -hmm. They've all made claims to the caliphate. We'll talk about those claims in a second. Mm -hmm. But the uh, uh, the Umayyads and the Abbasids were far better at integrating uh, minorities into uh, the caliphate in the sense that the majority of the citizens mm -hmm. they ended up conquering yeah. ended up becoming Muslims. Now, of course, they weren't forced into mm -hmm. Islam, but the success of the implementation of Islam was such that if not the current generation, future generations slowly melded into the uh, religious and political domain of the caliphate and ended up becoming Muslim. So Syria, mm -hmm. Persia were lands where today, alhamdulillah, uh, we still see the vast majority of, of the people in those mm -hmm. occupying those lands are Muslims, right? We think about the Ottoman incursions into most of Eastern and Central Europe, Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, these uh, provinces, these uh, domains of the Ottomans remain Christian. Mm -hmm. How do we, I mean, that, that shows a an inability to do what the previous caliphates were able to do. No, is that not a fair? So why do you assume that everyone in the Arab world became Muslim in the Abbasid period? What if I said to you, just, for, just to be a contrarian, and say actually all of those Arabs became Muslim during the Ottoman period? Uh uh, that's out of sync with what I know, but yeah, explain. exactly. Yeah, so this is the Fatimids. Hmm. Fatimids were a, a Shia entity, yes, and then they became Sunni when okay, you're the historian, right? and the Salah didn't okay, right? So it yeah. happens a lot later, yeah. Khorasan, ah, predominantly Sunni, yeah, now it's today's Iran, ah, all Shia. When did that happen? Yeah. Safavids. Ah. So what you're seeing is the once again, it's an ingrained assumption, ah, the assumption is is that people were just all converted to Islam in the very, very early periods. Yeah. A lot of conversions have happened later on in Islamic history. But isn't and, there a difference between Bulgaria and Anatolia? Yeah. Which is Ottoman? Yeah. Exactly. Explain that. How I, did the I Turks don't... all become Muslims but the Bulgarians don't? Yeah. Because the Ottomans had a particular policy that Muslims have always had, ah. just like the Mughals in India. Yeah. You know? Explain the policy, go on. So the policy is, is that they created particular mechanisms, either by taxation, by education, uh, by, um, you know, making particular jobs available in the state machinery or whatever it may be. Yeah. And people would convert to Islam for various reasons. And different groups of people had a different disposition towards becoming Muslim. Yeah. The Balkans in particular, we have Albanians and Bosnians who become Muslim across the board. Sure. We have Greek Muslims, we do have Bulgarian Muslims, and we do have Romanian Muslims. And so forth. But these people in particular, uh, these Muslims in particular, have disappeared because of the creation of the nation state, mm -hmm. right? Now, what we're saying, though, is the complexity of the Balkan provinces. Mm -hmm. And anyone who's been to the Balkans would realize the Balkans is like India. Right. It's a host of different 
areas and statelets and so forth of different peoples speaking different languages and they have a different tradition and multiple traditions that you know the ottomans didn't have an aggressive policy of trying to force convert and people converted by choice and mm -hmm. so forth but in anatolia where we had a similar dynamic but not as complex um you see waves and waves of turks and kurds and other muslims becoming muslim mm. so it's not a failure that i mean i the question is is that do we see that as a problem that muslims are, we we have to force people to become muslim right actually what it shows is that that's not what we do as muslims yeah. we don't force people to become muslim yeah. and in, in arabia where islam has been around the longest um people have converted to islam over time and that that conversion may not have happened comprehensively during the umayyad period or the abbasid period mm -hmm. we notice for example the the sunniization of of parts of khurasan happened under the seljuks mm -hmm. the seljuks had brought sunni islam at least that's the narrative back to the map in that region at a particular time mm -hmm. there's waves of sunni islam that's that's been coming throughout history and the reason why then people are becoming muslim um and that then form of criticism should be uh, you know laid towards the moguls in india or the various indian you know i've heard it been said by western historians that there was a deliberate policy not to make, uh, bring them to islam because uh, uh, the burden of taxation on non-muslims would have been greater than on muslims is there any truth to, to that i i think it's a very um, simplistic way of just assuming that muslims are only interested in money right um one we're seeing So in the Ottoman Empire, you do see this. The burden on Muslims was greater to safeguard the interests of the state. Yeah. And um, in many ways, um, the Ottomans would find multiple mechanisms to adhere to the principles of Islam um, in order not to um, to execute harsh punishments towards Muslims. And the Ottomans were then doubly careful to make sure that they, they were um, a lot more um, um, affable towards non-Muslims. As a way of not coming coming across as Muslims who are persecuting non-Muslims in their empire, yeah. and what's important about this is we see this um, in regards to Britain and India. Yeah. The way that the British treat Muslims and non-Muslims alike in India mm -hmm. is a way that the Ottomans have never treated non-Muslims. Right. Now, it is possible that there have been um, confessional sort of like contestations in the Ottoman domain, and I'm also willing to concede that from time to time the central state, throughout its five six hundred year history, would have made particular policy areas at any given time in that 600 and those 600 years mm. but by and large um, the ottomans were very careful about their non-muslim population mm. because they believed that islam their belief is we're not trying to make you muslim we want you to live under islam right. there's a difference you understand yes and that you know um this is why the millet system was so successful which millet is, system. explain the millet system. where you have these confessional um sort of like communities right like you could be a christian or a jew or Orthodox Christian or Greek Christian, yeah. Armenian Christian or whatever, yeah. and you would live in your communities. You would be safeguarded to practice whatever you choose to practice within your community. Yeah. Um, and that you could even uh, practice law in the way that your community do, does so. Right. And then if you're not satisfied with that, you can then go to the Sharia courts. So you'd have two courts. You would have two courts. But right. the, the choice was yours. Really? But the Ottomans were very careful of intervening into the... Um, everyday matters of what's happening in someone's home in regards to whatever religious group they belong to and the ottomans were very um, sensitive towards not trying to agitate the various communities right. and the communities were wide and large yeah. so we're not you know 
I'm just mentioning to you about the various different types of Christians that exist in the Ottoman Empire. We have different types of Muslims from the Shia who are in Iraq and Lebanon. You have Sunni Muslims, obviously. And then you have people who belong to other denominations um, like the Druzis and the Alawis and so forth. They all exist in the Ottoman Empire and the Ottomans had to find ways of dealing with this complexity of, of the region um, in many ways and make the case that they can live under Islam. Um, and that Islam is not the problem here. We, what we see in regards to Western Europe in particular. So I give an example of Sheikh Rashid Ridda. Mm. He's a Salafist reformist, think of him, born in Tripoli, lives in Egypt. And in uh, his Al-Manar press, I reckon September 25th, mm. he writes uh, a tract, I still remember it. 25th, he, what date? September 1908. 1908. Yeah, okay. He writes that what is so exceptional about France and its revolution they are one people, one language, mm. one nation. But we, the Ottomans, and he calls himself Ottoman. Yeah. Because we, the Ottomans, are many people, mm. many languages, many religions. So he sees that as a problem? No, he says many ethnicities. Ah. And then he goes, and in, he celebrates the fact that our equality is far more complicated and nuanced than the one that you've achieved. Right. Now, what is he trying to do? The right. French Revolution at the time, and even now, has become the standard of all modern revolution. That's the imagination that everyone has, the French Revolution. I'm assuming it's the revolution of 1848, not the revolution of the right. 1780s, right? And the idea is, is he's saying, so what's so great about your revolution? We have had a revolution in which we haven't assim forced assimilation. We don't have just one group of people that are speaking one language and that have one religion. That under Islam, you can have this plurality. That under Islam, you can have equality under the eyes of the law, but you can still have your difference. And that even as Muslims, we are different. And that was the point he was pushing home. And I, he wouldn't be the only thinker who thought like that. And that is interesting. And I think it's worth celebrating then. More so that Muslims have had the ability to allow non-Muslims to live under Islam in peace, in the way that they saw fit, than to have the argument that we should have forced converted everybody. Right. right? Okay, that's interesting. So... You, you, we talked about the different stages, and again, maybe this is a little simplistic. And of course, there are there are phases in between. Yeah. But if we were to say that you've got the Umayyads, the Abbasids, and you've got the Ottomans, yeah. right? There is an argument made today, and it's an argument I see consistently being made by by Muslims uh, that the Ottomans really weren't a caliphate. Mm -hmm. You know, the true caliphates were the two prior caliphates that came between. But after the sacking of Baghdad and the decline of the Abbasids, you know, as a as a force, the Ottomans really were a, a European empire, mm -hmm. and it was only until Sultan Abdul Hamid II that right. the idea of the Ottomans having laying claim to a caliphate yeah. became became real. I mean, how do you understand this whole sort of notion of caliphate versus versus the Ottoman Empire? Muslims want to believe that they can believe that. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? But it, it, uh, is there, you know, going back to Sultan al-Fatih, is yeah. there a, you know, an acknowledgement? But what, what, what is the claim that they're not a caliphate? What is the claim? The claim is what? That they weren't Arabs? That they weren't from the Quraysh? Then we might as well give up on that idea today. Mm. Forget it. It's over. Mm. Um, there has to be a particular, in order to say they're not a caliphate, right. you have to then put down the conditions of what is a caliphate. Okay. You have to make that condition. That these are the conditions of a caliphate. They didn't fit that condition. So what is the argument that's being put forward? Is the argument being put forward that Salim came down and wiped out the Mamluks? Mm. How is that different from the Abbasid revolution? 
is the argument being put down that they're not Arabs? Then is Islam only for the Arabs and only the Arabs are going to be in positions of authority and power? The Hanafis didn't believe so. Or is the fact that the Quraishi hadith is the reason? Well, if that's the case, the Hanafis once again didn't believe that that position condition, yeah. was, was a condition. Now, yeah. there are scholars who believe that, but that was ikhtilaf based on, on the ulama's positioning. They, yeah. They're entitled to believe whatever they want to believe. But in today's day and age, in 2024, yeah. let's just say, or 23, we have a khilafah tomorrow, you, we're going to find the Qurayshi. How are we going to chase that lineage? Mm. Is that feasible? Is that acceptable? So the argument, yeah. the argument is not clear for me what it is that they're trying to, to make. About, okay, maybe, and maybe you can you, you can shoot this down as you're shooting down all my yeah. all my points, but, you know, Sultan Abdul Hamid II was yeah. the first person caliph. to use the term caliphate. That's not true. Ah. All right, so what's interesting, I'll give you an example. What was it? Um, Baghdadi, what was his full name of the ISIS guy? Uh, Abdul. Uh, Abu Bakr? Abu Bakr, our cameraman knows. Yeah, Abu, Abu Bakr. Bakr. So Abu Bakr Baghdadi. Yes. Okay. So it's interesting when he established his so called caliphate. Yes. Right? What's intriguing is what did he do? He created an imagination of what? The Abbasid Caliphate. Yes. He dressed in black, yeah. black robes with his expensive watch <laughs> and wonderful long black robes in the middle of the Masjid in Raqqa, yes. making this claim and creating an imagination that, you know, a proper caliphate was the last time we had a proper one ah. was during the Abbasid period, right? the Abbasid revolution. What's intriguing about this imagination is his imagination is coming out of a history of Arab nationalism. Yeah. So he's probably somebody who came out of the Ba'athist regime, mm. either in Syria or in Iraq had that particular form of nationalist indoctrination, believed in it, bought into it, and internalized it. What was intriguing more, and I've said intriguing twice now, is that when he speaks about the Ottomans, he mentions only Sykes and Pico. Mm. So for him, when he thinks about the Ottomans, he thinks Sykes and Pico. Yeah. Prior to that, everything else is irrelevant to him. This is the French-British uh, secret agreement to, to, carve, to, out, to carve, carve out, out the yeah, Ottoman and, Empire. And draw lines, right? Okay. Now, that, tell, that is telling of something in the sense that to what degree people have become so disconnected that they have such a large blind spot in their imagination. It's because he didn't read your future book. He did not read my future book. Yes. Only he did. Uh, maybe he should have listened to our podcast. <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make then is that um, there is a particular imagination in right. the minds of the Muslims right. who also, by the way, don't do Umayyad and Abbasid history, ah. who have the assumption that the Abbasid Khilafah was the only real true Khilafah, and mm. after that, nothing has been replicated. All right, let's look at the case in Selim. When Selim comes down to the Mamluks in 1516, 1517, mm. takes over um, the Arab provinces, there are works in Istanbul that are being written by the ulama, not only Turkish ulama, by the way, various ulama which are consolidating his claim towards the Khilafah. So this was the uh, the, the consolidation of what, what the remnants of the Abbasid claims super caliph. Yeah, so you have a nominal uh, al-mutawakkil caliph yeah. in Baghdad, I mean, yeah. sorry, in Cairo, Cairo who's yeah. under the authority of the Mamluks right. and so forth. And so he takes them out house arrest, he's the next caliph, right? Okay. And there's a lot, Hussein Yilmaz writes this in his work about, um, and I'm not sure Hussein Yilmaz is trying to do this, but at least he shows that there are a lot of political tracks and moral and ethical tracks that have been written by the ulama mm -hmm. trying to make the case um, of what a good caliph ought to be. So mm -hmm. in Ottoman history, we, we notice this, they have a, a, 
ادب کلچر اٹس کول ادب معاشرہ اور معاشرت وچ از آئیڈیا دیٹ دیر از اے پرٹیکولر ادب دیٹ شوڈ بی انڈرسٹوڈ بائی پولیٹیکل اتھارٹی So adab is interesting. Yeah. I'm going to go off tangent here. So adab yeah. is not simply good manners, oh. right? The understanding of adab would be that um, everything has to be in its rightful place. Okay. Now, the, if you, okay, so let me go off tangent. Then. So I'm going to get water. Water is a ni'mah from Allah Ta'ala. Um, water is something we do wudu or yeah. abtis in Turkish, you see. Yeah. Water is, gives us life. Um, water gave this planet life. Allah Ta'ala mentions water about a life giver. He talks about it. Being sent from the sky and so forth, yeah. Zamzam is water and so forth. Mm-hmm. Now, when you holistically understand all the value that water gives you in terms of insan, then your That's relationship true. with water changes in the way that you interact with it. Mm-hmm. So, in my parents, they wouldn't allow us to throw water. Mm-hmm. You'd bring a cup of water with me holding it like this at the bottom, right? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't. They tell us not to drink it quickly. Mm-hmm. Drink it sitting down. Drink mm-hmm. Zamzam standing up. Yeah. Whatever. That other culture here now, the it's it's holistic in the sense. That water then is falling into this whole framework of how you should interact with it. So what is going on here is that the knowledge of that um, thing is understood holistically, right? It's not just where's the Quran Sunnah for this. It's internalized in the society to the point that everyone understands it. Um, Quran, okay? So you, I've been raised in an Indo-Pak environment. For us, Quran could never go underneath the bed. Mm. Quran had to go on the top of the shelf. Yes. Quran had to be packed in a cloth. Um, Quran had to go on top of any other book. When I was going to the madrasa, we had to hold the Quran to our hearts and walk to the madrasa. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Because it's kalam Allah, right? So the the adab culture around this, even though people say this, this is some may argue that this is bidah. Where's the evidence for this? But the adab culture was. There's a particular decorum mm. that has to go with your interaction with this, right. which is very strong. In what you see in the Asian subcontinent and in Turkey, today's Turkey as well, mm-hmm. right? In the Ottoman Empire, there is a particular culture that not only talks about politics, but it talks about family, it talks about society, about what it means to be an elevated group of people. Mm-hmm. And this other literature is consistent. And even in the 19th century, when modernity is coming, you start to see an increase of this literature because of the fear that you know whatever's happening in Western Europe is going to corrupt society, right? Mm-hmm. Now going back to the caliphate, so we see this in Salim's time, the creation of a lot of these works. We see this throughout the Ottoman period when they're speaking of the imam or the hakam or the, the, the khalifa. They call him the khalifa and they have this culture that talks about it. In 1774, um, when the Ottomans go to war with the Russians over the Crimea and lose it, Kuchukainaja, which is the, the treaty, the Russians for the first time accept that the Ottomans are caliphate. This is first time written in Western documentation, right? Mm. And from then onwards, it's it's known that they're a caliphate. So the Ottomans, throughout the time, as making a claim towards being a caliph, have been consistent. Mm. In the early Ottoman period, in Selim's time, it is very possible that in India and other parts of the Muslim world, they would have rejected Selim's claim. Why? Because one minute you have a caliph in Cairo, the next minute it's in Istanbul. They obviously are going to turn around and say, we reject that. We're not accepting it. Who are you? We're not giving this to you. We never gave you any legitimacy to do that because it changes everything. It changes the whole dynamics of the Muslim world to some degree. But within 50, 60, 70, 100 years, as generations are going by, this became the accepted norm 
to the point in India in World War One, you have the Khilafat Committee who are doing what? Mm-hmm. Fighting for the Ottoman Empire. Right. So this discursively becomes accepted, right? So if you read the works of Muslim thinkers in India, like Molana Kalamazad, the Ali Brothers, you know, you read the works even of Maududi, Muhammad Iqbal, they all accept that that the, the Ottomans have been a Khilafah from whenever they've been. And even in the Arab world, there are writers accepting this. This would not have been possible if it wasn't for the Arab ulama mm. to accept that this is what it is. And with that came a great responsibility. But today, there's a sense of hubris sometimes of being very easily dismissive. Why? The Alavis say they were Sufi, Sufi Khilafah. We reject that. Mm. Or, you know, they were Turks. We reject that. Or they're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. But these are just like very reductive claims, you know, but very little in terms of research. Now, for me, what I try to tell my students is just embrace your history as a whole. Why do you have to go after it so aggressively? What is the intention of going after it so aggressively? Because once again, it's trying to legitimize something now, mm-hmm. right? What I try to do in terms of teaching my students is this is all your history. I want you to understand it. Then whatever you want to make with it, that's up to you. But let's understand it properly and go through it holistically. And 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 this is why it's important that we need people to teach history and Islamic history uh, in that way. But it's still the talks yeah. at the mosques and so forth. And it's really aggressive and it's not necessary, in my opinion. Okay, can I ask you a, a sub-question related to that? And, and that is the, I use, and you use the term yeah. Ottoman Empire. The yeah. last time I interviewed you, I got a, got some messages from friends of mine and they said, well, why call the Ottoman uh, uh, Caliphate an empire? Because yeah. empires are associated with all that is bad yeah. in the world, the British Empire, you know, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the American Empire is what we call the current mm. sort of Pax Americana. How... Is that, a, is that a lazy use of language or can we make a case that the Ottoman Caliphate was simultaneously an empire as well? So, all right. So we have in Europe three schools of thought that come about about writing history. We have the Frankfurt School, hmm. which promotes a very Marxist understanding of writing history and, and humanities, which becomes very prevalent. Yeah. We have the Anal School, which comes from France, which looks about how great and cent- France is and center in France and the narrative of modernity. And then you had the Cambridge School that came from England, in which they tried to promote the idea of empire. Right. Right. And how um, look at not all empires are bad, and not all empire. And their main attempt was to try to British Empire salvage the the um, sort of like um, what would you say the image of the British Empire to some degree. And it was intriguing is it's in during those moments you have the establishment of the idea of queen and country and so forth, um, trying to weigh uh, because you're getting this residual decline of the Commonwealth and whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, in English, that word empire has stuck because in many ways, there isn't a different way of trying to categorize in the English medium a particular landmass where a dynasty is in power or in mm-hmm. charge. Mm-hmm. Um, now, some historians have making the argument that not all empires are the same, mm-hmm. right? So they make the claim. They, there's a disclaimer. They'll say, look, when we talk about empire, Actually, in a lot of Muslims, they have this hang-up of the imperial empire of the British or the French. Yeah. What they're saying is that, look, not all empires are the same, and we are qualifying this, and we simply mean an empire, which is a dynasty that's in power, and it's been in power for a prolonged period of time, like the Roman Empire and, and so forth, right? Um, more recently, people have taken exception to the idea that it's an empire because they still have that idea that empire means what the British were, and we don't want to associate ourselves with that. That comes with the need to then qualify it, whether you're going to choose to use a language. In Ottoman studies, 
the word Ottoman Empire has just become a given. Right. To the point, it just becomes very difficult to try to deconstruct it in that way. Mm. Now, if Muslims are going to say it's a Uthmani Khilafah, then they need to explain what a Khilafah is. Mm. Right? This is where, the, now, if we're going to use our own terminology, and I'm, I'm in full support of that, but then you have to explain what is a Khilafah. Is a Khilafah a system? Or is a Khilafah a, a, is it like democracy where you can have multiple Khilafahs or so forth? And like, I have my own opinions on this, but what I'm saying is that if Muslims are going to use alternative language, the alternative language has to be far more crystal and clearer than the, the claim they make towards the ambiguity of the language that they do not like. And that's understandable. For, for example, in our Islamicate languages, we probably wouldn't use the word empire. And that's where part of the problem is. So then how, how do you how would you say that in English? Especially when we're interacting in English so often. Yeah. So this is why like people like Subramaniam and so forth, when they make the case that it's better to make the argument that not all empires are the same, um, then in that way you can at least then speak about the Mughals, speak about the Ottomans, speak about the Safavids and so forth, speak about the Umayyad. Actually they will say the you know, they say the Abbasid Empire or the Umayyad. Mm. So they will say it in that way. So um Okay, so it's, it's a contested idea and, and you know, to take the broad understanding of yeah. empire that it's not always evil is, yeah. is probably a way forward for now at least. It's becoming more and more popularized as well, the yeah. word empire. Yeah. And we're not talking about the empire in the, the, the British sense, yeah. but the, the, the term empire, there is an attempt to reclaim it yeah. in comparison to the nation state. Right. That's also happening. Okay. Right. So now when people have become critics of the nation state, then if you're going to use a... If you're going to speak of an alternative model of the nation to, to, in relation to the nation state, what would you speak of? Yeah. And then people would use the word empire. But then there's an imagination that the empire is what the British were doing. So then you have, like, so for today's arguments, people will say America is an empire. Mm. Now, what does that mean exactly, right? And some people will make the argument that actually America is at the top of the food chain in regards mm. to global politics because it's an empire, right? because it's not a traditional nation state. Mm. And then when we were looking at the Cold War between the USSR and the Russians, these were a contestation between two empires. empires yeah. So here you start to see that there is still a fluidity in the way that the word empire is used. Yeah. So for me, Muslims can use it how they see fit, but I think what will be needed in English anyway mm. is a, a disclaimer or a footnote mm. because it's just become so popular that to not use it becomes complicated for the readers mm. who are reading about Ottoman history. When we talk about Islamic history, when non-Muslims talk about Islamic mm. history, they talk about the golden age of Islam. Mm -hmm. And that golden age is obviously always associated with the Abbasids, with yeah. Baghdad, yeah. with the uh, the height mm -hmm. of intellectual thinking, of poetry, of ulama, of mm -hmm. science, of technology. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's often the case the Ottomans are seen to be the antithesis of that, right? The Ottomans were soldiers. They weren't, the Archifinder had great mosques and architects, but you don't get the feeling that at least from, and again, you know, you, certainly you were contested, but you don't get the impression that the, ulama, uh, that the Ottomans produce great poets, and great ulama. You know, Islamic scholarship doesn't seem to, when we talk about Ibn Taymiyyah or, you know, or Ghazali or, you know, whoever in, in Islamic history, we, t we tend to talk about scholars that mm -hmm. came before the sack of Baghdad. Mm -hmm. Is there a truth in, in the argument that the Ottomans were were not multidimensional and did not reach the height of what today we would call civilizational standards? I think that's unfair. Yeah. Um, so even like the idea of the golden period, 
it's related to decline. Yes. Right? So you have to have a golden period and then there is a decline right. that comes after the golden period. And even in Ottoman history, there are moments of the golden period. We mentioned it today, Suleiman the Magnificent. Mm. So we said that that is a golden period in the minds of at least Lewis, if Muslims don't want to accept that. But that is a golden moment and from that moment onwards. So basically the moments the Ottomans became a khilafah, they just tanked, <laughs> right? Um, but the idea of golden period is often used by people as a way of creating comparison to create a particular standard. So I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. So we will always use the past as a way of judging ourselves. And we will also use the future as a way of judging ourselves. So we want to go forward. We want to be progressive. We want to improve. So then we will say that the past is decadent. Or we will say, you know what, look at the state of us. Look what's happened to us. The past was so great. right? And this shifting of the timeline of our imagination regarding the past continuously happens. So we continuously create particular golden moments as a way of how we see ourselves in the now, once again, right? Now, in the case of the um, the uh, Abbasids in particular, and actually Muslims did wonderful things in Andalusia and other parts of the world, including, you know, uh, the, the, the the Russian areas or India and so forth. So this is not just a, a an argument laid towards the Ottoman Empire. This is a, an argument laid towards the Muslim world as a whole, that after the so-called golden age of the Abbasids, which lasted what, how long? You know, maybe a couple of decades. That that's it. Ever, ever since then, we haven't been able to do anything, which just doesn't hold water. So, in the Ottoman period, we have the known of the tulip age and so forth. We have continued works of poetry in the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottomans were not putting guns to the Arabs' heads and saying, "Listen, you can't do good work." So, in that sense, people need to understand how the empire was for a very long time. It was a decentralized empire in which people were interconnected had levels of semi-autonomy or autonomy in fact intellectually even where they could do whatever they see fit and so what we saw in different parts of the ottoman domains is different forms of intellectual um culture and so forth where that changes interestingly enough is in the 19th century with the printed press what the tools of modernity create is a synchronization if that if we're going to make an argument for modernity the idea of modernity is to synchronize create everything streamlined one language, one newspaper, one identity, and so forth. And when we start to do those sort of things, then we start to see the past in that way. We want to assume that everything was just one place and so on, right? But that wouldn't have been feasible. The Ottomans wouldn't have had that level of control over the rest of its domains to stop people from producing. And, you know, the West wasn't in a particular space where it could have intervened in the Muslim world to stop it from producing. So Muslims were producing, it's just that, my argument once again, is that we have become disconnected from all that literature of production. Because how is it, and I say this again, and I've used this word in the past, collective amnesia, that we have a 600-year blind spot. It's a 600-year blind spot. Because the only understanding we have of Ottoman history, unfortunately, on many occasions, are the questions you've asked me. <laughs> it's not actually, if I went to all those people that you surveyed, um, regarding these questions. And I'll be honest with you, this can sound quite flippant on me, <laughs> but I've had these questions so often yes. that I could have sent you those questions. Yeah. Because on all the podcasts I've been on, the questions have come in the same vein, mm. which shows you a particular um, stagnation, which is that we are borrowing these questions from each other. But then when I say to all of these students and people who ask me these questions, and did you study Ottoman history? 
And they go, no. I said, well, where did you get this from? Where did you get this question from? I read it somewhere. Where? Oh, you know, I was on Wikipedia. Or I watched the debate where they said such and such. Or, you know, I read an Ottoman history book. Which one? Oh, I was reading Bernard Lewis or Carolyn Finkel. I said, yeah, but these works are being contested and challenged by historians all the time. So when you look at the works of uh, Carolyn Finkel's Osman's Dream or Bernard Lewis's book, what you see is that people will say, I picked up this and I read it. Mm. But that's different than studying Ottoman history, mm. right? And I, once again, I'm making this outlandish claim. My students, not only my students, but students who study Ottoman history don't ask those same questions. Because once they're reading all the literature, once they're having the debates with me and each other and so forth, they start to say, oh, hang on a minute, okay, wait, um, th this question sounds a bit strange now me asking it. Right? So what are the questions that we should be asking? Give me, give me a list of questions I should really be asking well, about I, Ottoman history. I, I don't want you to ask me a list of questions. Oh. What I want you to do is study Ottoman history. Okay. You know, this is what I want. But what I want is to, for Muslims to study history. And I'm not saying that history is not taught in the seminaries. And I'm not saying that people who are trained in the seminaries don't have the skills. I've, had, I've met people. So here, I have a very strange profile in this city. Random Muslims from around the world will send me an email, find it on the internet, say, can we meet up for coffee? I'll say, sure. We'll sit down and they'll say, you know, I studied dozens of Can we meet up for coffee and then they'll ask you, is it haram or halal? It, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it was this band, you know. <laughs> but then they'll say stuff like, I studied dozens of Islam. Ah. Am I qualified to do history? I say, of course you are. Ah. You got all the tools that you need to study history. You know, and what you see is in the seminaries, they are given all the tools to study history. But there's a belief that they can't do history unless if it's done in academia. There is that belief. That needs to change a little bit. We need to find alternative ways of teaching history to Muslims that don't only are not only restricted in the academic space because it's an ivory tower. Mm. It feels like an ivory tower, and we feel very they feel very detached from people like myself. I yeah. accept that. Yeah. But what I would like to see is that we do find a more wholesome way of teaching history where we're teaching it all the time, mm. right? And the reason why I say that is because it's to make them feel like they 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 exist. That they are attached to a body. In Islam, we don't teach time in a linear fashion. Yeah. Right? So I went to a janazah today and um, people kept saying, in illahi, in illahi rajun, right? They'll keep on saying it over and over. And we were all internalizing this. Why? Because from Allah Ta'ala, we came and to Him we returned. When I talk to my students, I say to them, when you're thinking of a timeline, think of akhirah, you're akhirah oriented, mm. not just this dunya. You're reading the book, that's all you think of. What you realize is the akhirah came before you and it came after you. So your time is not flat, it's not straight. The Quran, which has an opening, but doesn't have a beginning. Mm. It's a book which skews your notion of time. Mm. And what the Muslims should be thinking of when they see themselves in the timeline of humanity is that there is something bigger than us mm. in regards to how we exist, how yes. we make sense of ourselves. Yeah. And so for me, there was a book written by John Fee, he talks about how can we do history or something along those lines. Mm. He was a Christian. And the argument that he was making is that can we do history that is helpful for Christians mm. so that they can place themselves in the world we live in? Mm. I'll make a similar argument. Can we do history in a way that can make sense to Muslims so that they can place themselves in the world they live today mm. so that they can understand their past, they can understand their present, and they can understand their future, which is not simply restricted to this dunya. Yeah. And I think that's necessary, right? Yeah. And this is why I want people to learn and I want to teach because I think that's the best way. And people will often say, and I get it, they say, can you give me a bite-sized pamphlet? Mm. It, it, 
printed press. Can you just not give me a small book that I can read? And I, but that's not how I want you to do it. Because what I'm trying to do is not give you answers to your questions. What I'm trying to do is change the way you think. Okay. Can I ask you one last question then about... This is the last one? This is the last question. I, actually, you know, it's, it's a question about... Um, uh, we, we've established that there is not a linear, yeah. you know, decline of the Ottomans. Yeah. And uh, the last time we spoke, you raised a really interesting theory about the, the car crash theory. That yeah. If it wasn't for the First World War, yeah. the Ottomans could have been around yeah. today, right? Yeah. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the, the caliphate, which fell, what, 100 years, just we're coming up to 100 years of, uh, of the absence of a yeah. known caliphate, right? Yeah. Do you believe the caliphate would have been around if the Ottomans hadn't made the decision mm -hmm. to join the losing side uh, in the First World War? The caliphate would have still been around even when they lost the World War. Really? Um, if you see the Treaty of Severus and Lausanne in particular, mm. and then you see as a consequence what happens, um, the Ottomans, they still want their Khilafah to exist. I mean, it, this is why even in the Turkish Republic, you have this moment of abolishing the Sultanate and then the Khilafah. And... There are debates even within the Turkish Republic about whether this is the right move or not to do. And then you see in the Muslim world, at least uh, amongst Muslims, uh, that are thinkers from India and the Arab world still thinking that we can revive something. Mm. Um, so clearly the idea was never to abolish it in the Muslim consciousness, yeah. which meant that even if the Ottoman Empire had lost the war, there would have been particular concessions and they would have had to accept the fact that their boundaries would not have been the same as they had been 100 years prior. Mm. But what was intriguing is some of the treaties that they were signing, like with Egypt and so forth, which was still an acceptance that the Ottomans were at the top of the food chain. That you have your form of autonomy, but we still exist as a Khilafah. Similar in the way that the United States does. Now, the United States is a little different because it's quite powerful, but in the sense that the United States doesn't govern Europe. Okay, It governs its states, and even its states are... They have their own sort of legal mechanisms, but it governs. It, it, what it does is it, it's an influence on Europe, and it's a leader for the Western world, and it sort of like leads the Western world, and the Western world looks up towards it. As a result of that, you can say that the United States of America somehow is pulling Europe along with it, or the West, shall we say, along with it to wherever projects it wants to execute. What the Ottomans were hoping, probably, and this is just probably my argument. I can't substantiate this, is that they would have still existed and the rest of the Muslim world intellectually would have still felt a sense of allegiance to the Ottoman Empire and they would still have led the Muslim world to some degree. Now, other people would have made the argument that did they need to exist? As a historian, I would make the argument similar to the state of Israel. The fact that the state of Israel exists gives a particular form of legitimacy to Jews around the world, even if they don't live in the state of Israel. That's the existence of that state provides them that agency, even when they live in other parts of the world, right? Mm. And so if the Ottomans had existed, they probably would have provided a particular form of agency to Muslims, mm. even if they didn't live in the Ottoman Empire, just for the fact that they existed in that format. Now, what that format might have been is interesting, because when the first new nation states were formed, it was new for the Muslim world, and it was on very shaky ground. And um, who knows how that would have configurated in many ways. Mm. Um, so I personally think that it could have survived in a different form and that um, it would have still been dealing with the complexities of the world that it's in. What the Ottoman Empire would have done in World War II would have been interesting. Um, uh, I would have assumed that they would have stayed neutral in the way that the Turkish Republic did. 
Um, but the Turkish Republic had the sense of hindsight because of what the Ottomans did. And the Ottomans didn't have a precedent of something like World War I before that. For And this is probably one of the questions is like, why did they get involved in World War I? I don't think they had much of a choice, actually. I mean, it's very easy to say now they could have remained neutral. But the way that the Western powers were going after each other, the Ottomans were caught in, in, in a particular space. And they tried to... The idea was, is that when you create alliances, mm. when you're with a strong alliance like the British, then the chances of you being attacked are very unlikely because it creates a particular momentum. Nobody would have guessed the risk strategy that the, the Germans would have taken to create World War. I mean, that's unprecedented. Yeah. So that wouldn't have been part of the imagination that they're going to risk this. You know, It's like England playing cricket and basketball. They're just going for everything. Mm. You would never have thought of that, that they're going to, are they really going to be that kamikaze? Mm. Because there's a lot at stake. The world is at stake. Yeah. And I think the Ottomans would have thought, that, okay, we've aligned ourselves with the Germans, but this is going to be a quick war with the Russians. Then you never would have thought that this is going to be a humongous war that's just going to grind everyone down. Mm. Um, and then, you know, you have World War II. And the Europeans may have, because they had wars amongst themselves, right? Yeah. Um, Napoleonic wars were a little bit different. Mm. But so hindsight's a wonderful thing now. We can all look back and say so forth, but it would never have been part of that thought process. Yeah. Um, they, they, never, they experienced Libya, the Balkan Wars, very short wars, one or two years and so forth. Yeah. But, but this was unprecedented. How long have you been living in Istanbul? Uh, I think 10 years now. 10 years, it's been a decade. Yeah. I suppose the most important question is, don't you miss Chicken Cottage, Tootin? Tootin Chicken Cottage. Chicken. Sometimes, I mean, I do ask you to bring me cheese. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so, that's true. Um, you know what it is? Um, people sometimes ask me, like, uh, you know, when I, I, I watch your podcast with Thomas um, recently, and I, they were asking me, do you miss London? I said, mm. you know, I used to say home is where my mother is. Mm. You know, and my mother still lives in London. Right. So, um, in that sense. But I also... Um, made a choice just like my parents did when they moved to England that I made a choice to move to the Muslim world and I didn't move to the Muslim world because I was running away from the UK mm. um, I had a decent life in the UK I enjoy my friends and family and so forth but I wanted to make a difference and I made the choice at the time 10 years ago but I thought about this prior to that that if I could give my agency in this part of the world then maybe this part of the world could do something interesting after I die and that I want to be part of that process um, because I was tired of being a minority in Europe. And I thought if I was part of a majority, maybe I can do something different. Now, there are different challenges here. There are still forms of otherization that take place and so forth. But these are still my people. And this is still my own, you know. So I remember one time I was asked by somebody, like, don't you feel ashamed that you left the Muslim community in London behind to come to Turkey? Hmm. I said, I never asked my mother that question when she left Pakistan behind. You know, the Ummah is the Ummah. Wherever I'm at, I try to teach. And uh, I, I love the fact that I have students here. And Istanbul is an interesting hub where Muslims from around the world who don't have the luxury of being able to go to the US or Europe anymore are coming here to learn and study. And I have the opportunity to teach them. And, you know, there are some beautiful people that I've met because of that. And alhamdulillah, that, that's uh, something from Allah Ta'ala. Um, you know, and... and like here, for example, I had there are two publishing houses here that are doing wonderful work. One is Dergi, mm. which is Ismail Karahoja's publication, which are translating everything from the late Ottoman Empire into Turkish. Mm. And then the second one is Ketebe, mm. which are looking for scholars and thinkers and writers, Muslims, right. who will publish works.
for them and they're willing to be able to uh, you know support that work around the world mm. and in that sense Istanbul is an interesting hub and it's from Istanbul that I started teaching online you know because then people from around the world um, started asking me like you know your classes online would be interested and Istanbul's given me all of that now if I was in England one I probably would never have taught Ottoman history I'd have taken up a, another day job but this is the center of Ottoman history. I love Ottoman history. I love Islamic history. I don't only teach Ottoman history. And this city has given me the opportunity to do something that I love. And um, I like to believe, inshallah, that Allah Ta'ala rewards me for what I do. And imagine you feel a sense of reward for the job that you do. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and I get paid for it. So can't complain. Dr. Yakub Ahmed, jazakallah for your time today. Thank you. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website thinkinmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.